Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. Listener, do you live on the East Coast? Are you looking for an excuse to travel to the East Coast? Then we hope you'll join us October 7th and 8th at Dominion Classical School in Sterling, Virginia for the Face of God, a Circe Regional Conference. The psalmist expressed his intense desire to see God's face, even complaining that God hid his face from him. God told the psalmist to seek his face. The worshiper and the worshiped came together. Seek ye my face, thy face, Lord, will I seek. On the other hand, God told Moses, with whom he spoke face to face, that thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. The past couple years have reminded us how important is the human face. We are the image of God. Does masking the face mask that image? Have we lost more than we realize? A baby seeks its mother's eyes even before it seeks to be fed. And no wonder, because a face communicates, accepts and rejects, approves and condemns, welcomes and denies, dances and mourns. Please join us as we reflect with Vegan Gorian, Tracy Lee Simmons, and many more on the face of God, especially in the light of nurturing the souls of our children and students who live in the light or the shadow of our faces. For more information, visit searcyinstitute.org backslash fall 2022. When I decided to bring Quiddity back, it was partly because of how important the original iteration was in my journey into classical education. And I mentioned upon its return that I wanted to bring some of those conversations out of the archives. So that's what I'm doing today. In fact, we're going way back in the Wayback Machine to 2015 when Dr. Matthew Bianco, Cersei COO, was just Matt Bianco and our guest from Classical Conversations. Right about when I reluctantly agreed to take my wife to our very first Cersei conference. A lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. For instance, teachers still wrestle with how to engage reluctant students. So here are Andrew, Matt, and David discussing just that issue. I'm David Kern, and I'm here this week with Matt Bianco from Classical Conversations and uh, Andrew Kern from the Cersei Institute, in case you didn't know who that was, because you've never listened to our podcast before. Hi, Matt. Hi, Andrew. How's it going? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Well, uh, Matt is here to talk about uh, reluctant learners, reluctant students, because we made a classical Q&A video with him a couple weeks ago in which he answered a question about that. And in the... Well, uh, before I go to the next step, Matt, I'll let you summarize a little bit about what you said, if you can remember, what you said in that three-minute response to... I mean, three minutes isn't long enough to respond to anything, so... Yeah. Yeah. Are you ready for dinner? Three minutes would be a long enough response. My wife thinks I can respond in less than three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, so so what, summarize what you said in that. Um, I probably should have watched it again because I think I have already forgotten. Why don't you answer the question again and see if you still think what you thought then? Well, then we can compare yeah. and see. Good. Comparison okay, good. is a very important Well, if you want to watch this video, you can go to CerseiInstitute.org or go to our Facebook page and you can see the video there. That's what I would do. I would probably have to go to Facebook to see what uh, the Cersei page on Facebook. But the see. question in the video is what do you do about a reluctant student, right? Right. Yeah. So but some, th- something I said generated a response yeah. that that was a new question. I see. So and well, should we just jump to that question then? Would that be easier? Uh, th- I, yeah, I think okay, that would so be easier. If people, As okay. of this point everybody who's listening is thinking well, what are you we talking about? <laughs> right. Cuz I I need context now. Okay. What, in this video what, Here what we go. was it you were I was answering I was answering did you, what did you do? I was answering the question of how to deal with so what do you do if you have a reluctant student? How do you make them not reluctant? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and whatever I said generated this question. I see. All right, let's go ahead and listen to it then. Well, don't we get it when I get to know what he said? But we're going to listen to what he said. Oh, I see what you're saying. We should listen. When yeah, we're going to listen to what he said. Okay. This is scintillating. Scintillating. Pod, scintillating podcasting going on right now. Well, it's the whole idea of paying attention. I like it. It's, it's a good one. And when you listen, you're paying attention. Let me pull this up so we can... <laughs> when you're speaking, apparently you don't pay attention because you have no idea what you said. Exactly. <laughs> and by you, I mean me. You were just standing, <laughs> you were just standing in the middle of the woods. Just like... Okay, here what we go. Woods? Wait. In we South Carolina, down there. I just got lost in the woods. Just, never mind. Are we, we in Dante? In Are we in Dante now? <laughs> okay, so... Oh, nice music. I didn't know you could play. I can't. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so the question was, how can I cultivate a love of learning in a reluctant learner? Oh, that question. Mm. This is a good question because it's, it's specific. If you were just asking me how to cultivate a love of learning, it might be one answer, but cultivating a love of learning in a reluctant student is another. I like the distinction. Um, so, so somehow there's a student who, if, 
by nature would have a love of learning. Uh, if we're you know if we're to believe Aristotle, uh, which I do, then uh, that we but we yet we now have a student who doesn't have. What, what did Aristotle say? In some way. Um, Don't I say? What you're saying is that Aristotle says that all people are born with a love of learning, and you're saying that's what he... Yeah. Oh, okay. 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 All men by nature desire to know. All men by nature desire desire to know. know. Metaphysics, I like that. So what you're saying is the student has a love of learning, and for whatever reason, it now has lost that love of learning. Can you? Can you lose something that you have? We'll talk about that in a second. Okay. Let's let's listen to his wisdom. The problem problem could just as likely be in, in... you know, me, I could be sinning against that child somehow or huh. doing something wrong, wronging that child in some way. Uh, the curriculum itself could, the, the, the assignments, the tasks. Um, so, Circumstances, so, maybe. You know, kind of mm-hmm. looking at everything. The next thing that we need to do is to make sure that the, the curriculum or the assignment uh, that we're, we're asking the student to, to partake in is not beyond where they actually are. Uh, either either okay. in their knowledge level or even just in what they would be learning uh, of their own accord. Too big a in, gap in would words, be discouraging. Uh, mm-hmm. In other words, I don't want to. I, I want. I don't want to, to violate the rule that David Hicks puts forth in Norms and Nobility, where I'm answering a question before it's been asked. Uh, sometimes, what what appears to be boredom or frustration or reluctance in the student is me trying to force the answer, an answer upon them. As to a question they have not yet even asked, hmm. uh, I'm, I'm trying to take them further than than where they are, or down a completely different path than, than what they actually need. Uh, so, or are able to do. Making sure that mm-hmm. right, uh, right. making sure that we're identifying, which which is going to be done dialectically through conversations. Make sure making sure that I'm identifying what the actual need is. Hit for pause for a second. You said dialectically through conversations. Is that a synonym, or is that a definite? What, what's the relation? Is dialectics conversation is the same thing? I was it was um, it was a rhetorical emphasis. So I, I was saying dialectically, dialectically. Okay, so when you say through conversations, you just mean that's what dialectics is—is is conversation. I, I, I think that's how I how I was okay, using so the term you there. Yeah, M dash there. And yes, an M dash right. Uh, if we were if this was written, we would yeah we would M dash that would out. Dash yeah. the M's against the stones. <laughs> okay. okay, let's we, go on. Then. on? Okay, right. sorry, I just needed to get uh, that clarified. Where they're, where the, what question they actually have, and then seeking to answer it, and then using that knowledge to take them to a new unknown, where I then can answer a new question, give them new answers, and then using that knowledge to take them to the next unknown, and proceeding from there rather than skipping two or three or four unknowns and going mm. to the one that I just happen to want to answer. Go to a lesson eight in a math text instead of five when they're on five. Yeah. Okay. I bet my hand gestures are going crazy in that video right now, aren't they? Yeah, not so bad. You had one no. hand in your pocket. Okay. <laughs> I can imagine myself pointing to these imaginary unknowns and knowns and <laughs> bouncing all over the place. <laughs> okay, so then, so that response then, particularly the part about uh, not answering questions before they've been asked, mm-hmm. sparked the following question on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Thursday Institute, for those of you that have not visited or liked us yet. Uh, There's people who don't like us. Um, that sparked a question uh, from someone who asked, but doesn't? But the reluctant learner doesn't have questions to ask, and isn't that the problem? Mm. How do you get someone to ask questions if they're not interested in something? Yeah, so he, so he's... he's he or she is pointing me to. She's pointing me to the the second part of of David Hicks of the rule that David Hicks puts forth, which is that the teacher's job is not to answer a question before it's been asked, but to provoke the question. To elicit was his word, I think. And I was. never, yeah. I never address that second part, which is how do you provoke the questions? Yeah. And that's what this she's asking. Right. But if they don't ask questions, how do you then provoke them? And you can only say so much in a two, two and a half, three minute video. So, you know. Right. I'm, but clearly I, I should have been able to address that point in, in three minutes. Um, okay. So, so then it just it hadn't even occurred to me to answer it, though. Let's it's talk not about as easy that. as whether you Well, that's, you didn't. But they, she had asked the question before you could answer it. So. Yeah, she wasn't asking. She that didn't question ask the question. Yet. You should right. have answered it. I should have answered it. <laughs> now she's asked. <laughs> so now the question's been asked. How how can you do that? I mean, is there you know some people are going to say is there a method for that? Um, 
is there are there tricks are there tips can do you have to deceive kids into being interested or do you change your curriculum altogether so that they are interested or how do you how do you yeah. do that it's i i especially nice. like the idea of reducing education to techniques and tricks um <laughs> the <laughs> it's uh, it's all isn't it, that what it is i just want to manipulate this kid somehow uh-huh. Uh-huh. but i actually actually I, I i say that jokingly but i think that might be the problem is that is that the reason the kid, the child, the student doesn't have any questions is because whatever I'm doing often, maybe not 100% of the time, this may not be the only problem that, that causes this, but, but often what I'm doing is I'm trying to provoke a specific response from the child rather than, rather than a, a movement toward curiosity. Or an insight. Or an, or an insight. So um, so as the teacher or the parent or whatever the situation may be, it's, we have to change our expectations and the, the things that we are – the way we're assessing them, the things that we're asking of them? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I because I tutor with Classical Conversations, and I had a group of um, basically 11th graders, 16, 17-year-olds, and we they had finished reading Henry V. And so we were discussing Henry V. So I went in prepared to initiate a conversation about the scene where Henry V courts Kate, mm-hmm. the you know the French yeah. uh, princess there, uh, Duchess, whatever they call her. No, Duchess would be an English term, right? Anyways, um, so this whole scene where he's courting her, and I wanted to go in and have a conversation about this scene with the courting because it's it's fairly aggressive courting, um, if you'd even call it courting, and I wanted to talk about. That like what he did, should he have done that? Was it you know was it right, appropriate, just, whatever? But the students had found in the epilogue this statement about Henry V dies, his infant son becomes king, his advisors are end up ruling the land, and they basically run England into the ground. They England loses France, loses their claim to France, and and then England itself kind of gets run into the ground. And the students were wondering. Was that Henry V's fault mm. or was it the advisor's fault? Mm. Like, should Henry V have cultivated advisors who would not have done right. that? Right. And this whole idea, what is the responsibility of a ruler? And should he have maybe not got himself killed in an aggressive war? <laughs> right. There's all kinds of things. Yeah. for a kingdom. So, so I, went in, I went in with the expectation that we were going to have one conversation. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, the students turned it on me. I mean, turned it down a road that they were interested in. Now, I could have kept pulling them back to my question. We need to talk about this. We need to talk about this. We need to talk about this. And basically, you know, yelled at them for going down rabbit trails, yelled at them for getting distracted, whatever, and forced them to talk about my topic. But I didn't. I let, I let the conversation go where it needed to go. That and seems then, irresponsible. How are you going to get through a curriculum that way, Matt? That's the next question, right? What is what is Sorry, my goal? What is my purpose? He just shrugged his shoulders and yeah. defeatedly. <laughs> Andrew wins. <laughs> Do we have a scoreboard where we can mark up? Andrew? Oh, yeah. Andrew one, Matt zero. Oh yeah, we've been keeping that scoreboard for a long time. Okay. Yeah. We just took it down because it was getting a little bit lopsided. <laughs> it started falling off. The it's discouraging. Side, it? yeah. Whenever you come to the office, we take it down. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to distract the conversation. It's, but the, I, the thing is that <laughs> excuse me. The thing is, um, <laughs> the uh, my, my grammar is horrible. I just <laughs> yeah, what are we doing to put you on the radio? <laughs> right? The, well, the, the internet radio. The thing is, m dash that m dash. I'm gonna I'm gonna speak out my punctuation. To try I'm to not editing any of this out. <laughs> See if you can make your point, man. Let's see what happens. Um, <laughs> oh, it's just we're live. The, pro- <laughs> the problem is that as a as a well in my case as a tutor but as a teacher um, we can be afraid you know there's there can be a, a certain degree of fear that the students might take it somewhere I don't want that they, they shouldn't or right. that um, or that they're going to come to some conclusion that maybe is inappropriate or that they're going to go down a path that deviates too far from the text or from the curriculum or from the, the book, whatever. And, um, and so then, so then what, we, what we end up doing is we, we end up making this other thing. Uh, I, 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 wanna, I need to say this well. Uh, um, 
what we end up, what we're, what, if we force the conversation where we want it to go, I think what we end up doing is we end up trying to recreate the student in the image of that thing, the book, the curriculum, me, whatever, mm-hmm. rather than allowing the student go to go where he needs to go, which means honoring the image of God in him. And if I honor the image of God in him, then I'm going to let that, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to give that image freedom to go, to, to, to move and discover what, what he needs to discover. I, I don't know if I'm saying that as well as I should. I don't know if it can be said as well as it should be. I mean, it's a very important and profound point with all kinds of problematics. Mm-hmm. And what I'm thinking of, for example, is I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you as though I'm back in third grade as a teacher teaching third grade for three years. And... Um, seeing my kids in the classroom and I do have a curriculum and I do have subjects to teach and I do have certain skills that that need to be mastered and so on. And I can see from my perspective as that third grade teacher, I can see how uh, the child has the divine image and I want it to cultivate. And I can see how the child, um, especially if we're looking at a story, Right, you've been using a, a Shakespeare play or whatever for, for this. Um, and then I start thinking about math. And I think about the fact that, okay, he's not really interested in becoming self-disciplined, right? Mm, right. <laughs> he's, he, so there's, so I'm, I, I completely buy in, in principle to what you're saying that it's it's really and I'll even phrase it this way it's the it, we want to cultivate the divine image right. in the child not take thoughts out of our own head really which are reduced then to a proposition a sentence in our own head and then forced into their head or not take specific bits of information from a textbook and then plop them into their head we don't want to do that i think i think anybody who's listening to this podcast agrees we don't want to do that but we do, we do have to see that in this, this child, his divine image is being cultivated over a very long time called life. And he doesn't want it always cultivated. Right. So to be more specific, to be more concrete, let's, let's flip this around and go, for, since in the softer subjects, as they're now called, you have, let me put it this way, in literature, it really doesn't matter what insight a kid gets out of Henry V, as long as it's actually there. Mm-hmm. Not because... Not as because, long as the insight is actually there? Yeah, not because it doesn't matter what's in the play, but because there's so much in the play, right? You bring the child to the table, and whether they're going to eat, you know, it's let's say it's a big feast at the end of the school year, and one kid is going to have chicken and another steak and another pork. Well, which one's right? They're all good. That would be the point there. They're all good. They could draw some false conclusions. They could just eat the cherry pie all night. Right. And, and, and one, or, or they could even decide they're not going to eat any of that. They're going to go outside and smoke. Okay. But when we look at, when we look at, uh, um, so, so in, in, in Henry V, if a kid decides, man, you really need to be aggressive or you're going to get your butt kicked, that, w- that would not be the conclusion we want them to draw. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so there, but there's a lot of insights you can gain from any good story, a lot, all right? But in a math lesson, there's a specific end, right? There's, well, a, there's a specific skill that you want the child, specific so they say. insight. Yeah, and that speaks, okay. to, I think, to a question that I would have. It, whether it's in math, you do have these specific ends. There are specific things um, that you need them to learn so that they can move on to the next thing. There's foundational things they need to learn. They need to learn how to math, to count before they can do algebra. Sure. You know, there's just obvious things they have to learn how to do. Not all subjects are quite that cut and dry, that obvious. So how do you determine what is most necessary to learn? I mean, because there are things that there's a lot for them to learn, obviously. And so how do you as a teacher learn to practice? Are you talking now about math or are you talking about... I'm talking about, about, say, in teaching reading or any other subject. I mean, even sometimes in math, because they can't, you can't learn everything in math, right? So how do you learn to, to determine what is most necessary to learn? How do you learn how to prioritize? Well, so, so that... What, I mean, I'm talking about as a teacher. 
Yeah, because what you're getting at is the is the breakdown in my story. I mean, mine was a particular story that I was using, but in my particular story, there were two different paths. Both were right. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. I was simply just not trying to force them down my path. Yeah, but I had to allow them to okay, go down their path. Math. But now, what happens if you have two paths and one of them's right and one of them's not? There are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. It's true. Wait, is it? Is it? <laughs> well, is yeah, it? if it depends uh, how you define progressive. <laughs> <laughs> Apply that to math, though. Uh, can it happen that way in math? So uh, my instinct, um, and, and, and the way I think I actually run, and I put run in scare quotes except nobody can see them, um, the, way I, the way I would run my math class is um, is that I would still allow them to go down the wrong road. I would mm. still allow them to go down the wrong path mm. until they realize, you know, to get them to realize they went down the wrong path. And then we go back, we go back down the path until we find where it became the can wrong you, can path. You, can you make that a specific and, concrete example? <clears throat> what could be a wrong path in math? So, okay, so let's say we were adding double-digit numbers, uh, 17 and 16. Okay. And so they add the seven and the six, they get 13, but they forget to carry the one. Okay. And then they, so then they add the one, the, the two tens and they get 20 and they, and they get, so they get, they end up, they end up just 26, but that's wrong. 23 actually. Or 23. Yeah. Four, <laughs> so, <right. laughs> Why didn't you let me go down the path? You had to correct it right away. Such a stereotypical. I'm here to you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so they get to 23 and then there's something wrong there. Uh huh. Now, now we have to back. Now we have to go backwards. But how do they know through, there's something wrong? Well, then there's, there there are ways to test that. Okay. So if they don't recognize immediately that they made a mistake, like if they don't see, wait, that can't be twenty three because mm-hmm. seventeen plus five is twenty three. Um, dang it! <laughs> <laughs> there's so much pressure on a podcast. I know, right? I can't do math. <laughs> We're friends. Um, We're all friends. <laughs> It's like a peanut gallery over there laughing at me. <laughs> Graham. Um, the, uh, is that, would be a, that would be a cracker gallery actually laughing at me. Graham. Oh. Uh, oh. <laughs> no one's laughing at I that. I know. One. No one. No, I am my own peanut you gallery there the laughing at my joke. The whole universe just grown. <laughs> okay. I just have to say there are two kinds of people in our audience. Okay. Okay. There are those who can extrapolate from the given information. <laughs> Got it. Um, okay, so if they don't, <laughs> I'm gonna just move on. So if they don't recognize immediately that 17 plus 16 cannot be 23, <laughs> <laughs> then we start asking questions. We start. We I, I would give more examples to test and to show them that they made a mistake. So I, I would ask them to add 17 and six, and then when they realize that. Mm-hmm. 17 and 6 is 23. Now they realize 17 and 16 can't be 23. Okay. And then we walk backwards through the problem to find the mistake. So in, in, even there, I still want to allow them to go down the wrong path, but then take them back. Perfect. Okay. okay. Now, but, but in literature, we said there's two right paths. Could that also apply to math? Well, can, can, I chat, can, we, can we discuss that premise? What? That there are two right paths? I mean, is, in literature? Legitimate paths. In I mean, literature. Is, so there's no wrong path. No, no, right. No, because you could you that. could have you could have a student, for example, I've, I've, I've heard this story. I've never met this kid, but I've heard a story of a kid who um, read Jane Eyre and decided that Rochester and Jane should have run off together and left his wife so to suffer what, on her own. So then at what point because of love do you step in as the teacher and say, you know, do you make the determination that you need to tell them this is the wrong path? I mean, I, I mean, I know. I, I assume anyway that that's going to vary depending on the student, depending on the situation, the book, the age, time, context. All that comes into it, right? But are there but any principles that age? You can follow? Yeah, when all it, of those circumstances have to come into play. You talked about Hicks before, and one of the points he makes that I really liked in, in Norms is, in nobility is is how math is a microcosm of the whole curriculum, and that mm-hmm. surprised me very much to hear that. But now I'm realizing that it really is not only of the curriculum, but of pedagogy, or in other words, the way we learn and teach. And the reason for that, forgive the digression, but the reason for that is because if you watch the way a child learns math, you are watching the child's mind work in a way that's easy to see. It's very direct because it's all abstract symbols. Yeah. If you watch the way a child's mind works in literature, it's weighed down with emotion, easily distracted. Point being, the mind always learns the same way. No matter what subject. 
basically it learns the same way. And when you just described how you would correct the math lesson, I think a teacher could follow that same activity that you went through with the math lesson to explore the Jane Eyre lesson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you believe that... Can, if you, if, can you step through that one more time? Yeah, that's what... We're listening. Do it, yeah, do it for math and then see if you can draw it over to Jane Eyre. Yeah, so, so with math, they concluded that 17 and, thir- and 16 is 23. Which is wrong. Which is wrong. So then I, 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 I asked them if they can recognize that there's an error there or if it looks right to them, looks correct to them. And then if they say it looks correct to them, then I start – I give other examples to try to point out that um, – to help them see for themselves, oh, that answer is incorrect because 17 plus 6 is 23. 17 plus 16 cannot be 23. Let's go back. And then we walk backwards through the problem to find – where, where we made the mistake, which might mean we don't have to go all the way back to the beginning. We only have to go halfway back. We find that we forgot to carry the one, and then we move on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we go back through it and see if it works. Test it again. It's kind of Socratic, isn't it? It is. It's, yes. It, I, I, that, yeah, I think, I think it is Socratic. Um, when you talk about math, it's so interesting because I hated math. No, you didn't. Well, no, I didn't hate math. Um, all the time. <laughs> no, you didn't. But you math class. Did you ever say that? Well, what, okay, fine. That's, that's fine. I hated math class largely because it didn't come naturally to me. And for those of us who, to whom math does not come naturally, the single most discouraging or the, the biggest sin is getting the question wrong. Right. And so yes, like, right. And when math is taught that way and you, yeah. you, there's, no, there's no joy, there's no enjoyment, there's no experimentation. It's just right, you got right. it wrong and that's it. And so it's about whether you get the equation or the question right or wrong, and there's really no in between, even on homework. You know, right? Yeah. You do it because right. you go home and you fill, you do your algebra homework, and you bring it back and you turn it back in, and you either got it right or you got it wrong. But this, you know, the way you said that is good because, it, um, you know, I, so I in my in my class I'm tutoring chemistry also, and so we're doing labs. Well, you know, I mean. Probably half the time, if maybe more than half the time, the, when they do a lab, it does not work out the way the book said it should work out. And so then it's not, you did that wrong, do it again. Wrong, do it again. Wrong, do it again. Wrong, do it again. It's, okay, we have something different than the book says. Why? Now let's have a, you know, let's work through this and look, look to see what, what, what circumstances may have affected us. That caused it to come out differently. It's you like, have to learn to decompose. Yeah, and if you mm-hmm. don't, if you don't see the logic, if you don't see the logic of it naturally, then the best way to learn to learn to see the logic is to get it wrong or to, to, yeah, to figure yeah. out what doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of like how Paul talks about the law in, in Romans and like how the law was there to show the Israelites, the Hebrews, what they did wrong. I mean, like to to, to clarify the difference between right and wrong for them. Yeah, or like mm-hmm. you know, way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can't if. To have to have the standard that helps you see what works in math is seeing what doesn't work often, except for the kids who just naturally see the logic of it. And the thing is that most math, most math teachers, <laughs> most math teachers are people who do see the logic of it. Right. And I think that they can't always identify mm. or sympathize with the student like me who has a hard time seeing the logic. Of I it. wonder so about f- that. For the ex- so there's this like you know for me I would have enjoyed it a lot more. If, if getting it wrong wasn't the greatest sin, right? Right, right, right. Exactly. I wonder, though, if most math, most math teachers see the logic of Yeah, maybe not. That's I, I suspect most my math dip. teachers <laughs> learn a process from a book and then have you repeat that process. Because if they saw the, if you see the logic, if, and what I mean by the logic, and I think you do too, what we're talking about is the internal, natural ordering of thought that leads you to a right answer. Okay, you have, a, you have an internal logic in literature, there's a kind of question that literature answers. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of way of thinking about literature. Yeah. Same with history. They, it, asks, it asks different questions, and it gets different answers. Okay? And in math, it's asking different questions, and it's getting different answers. But the way the child's mind works is still working the same in all these ca- cases. So there's a universal logic, we call that logic, that applies across the curriculum, and then and grammar too, and then there's a univ- and then there's a particular logic of a given problem, and if you're a really skilled thinker, I would suggest what you're good at doing is identifying the specific logic of the specific problem you're trying to solve. A carpenter is very very logical in solving carpentry problems, right, uh, and, and so on. So hmm. so a, so a, a, to to the, make the application, then the math teacher 
who actually sees the internal logic of a math problem, when he sees a student wander from that, he'll be able to identify that, break it down, as you pointed out, by, Matt, by asking specific questions that reverse engineer, basically, that, that break down, look for the inconsistency, and then can put the child back on the right path. Any teacher who can't do that is not actually successfully teaching the art that he's trying to teach. That might be really overstated, but I think, but I think it's true. So you had asked Matt to explore to apply that. it to Jane Eyre. Yeah, and you, so you yeah. applied it to you, you applied it to math, and then I interrupted you. Right. Give us a quick summary of math, so I get my head straight, and then go on to Jane Eyre. So a summary, or the, so a summary of math. I, I'm, I'm having, I'm allowing the students to go down to a path that I know, or that I suspect will end up in a in an incorrect answer. Um, with the two-digit numbers, the addition of two-digit numbers, I know in advance. I mean, I can tell right away with the mis- that they made a mistake. I just want to clarify You're that. Just My math here. skill is high enough there. <laughs> um, but maybe in a higher-level math, I might not catch it myself yeah, sure, until later. Sure. Then, then when, once, that, once it's realized that the mistake has been made, that a mistake has been made, then we go backwards through the math problem to see where. Um, by making comparisons, by trying alternatives, by whatever. Right. Right, but the, the I, I'm gonna before I before I jump over to Jane Eyre though, I, I think there was a question that you asked Andrew before, and Matt or David asked us to. I, I asked myself. Matt asked. Um, <laughs> well, David asked us to, to look at the literature Matt, again. So. That's true. That's true. And you're practically twins. Um, the uh, the um, I just lost my train of thought with the twins comment. The um, the thing is because you asked Andrew that you know does math only have one right path. Yeah. But even there, I can see that the, the way I walked through the two double, addition, double digit addition is not the only way to walk through it. Right. right? My, yeah. my son would say, round 17 to 20, add 20 and 16, get 36. I rounded it up three, so I'm going to subtract three, and I end up with 33. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't go through all of that other rigmarole. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's, there are all kinds of math scenarios where that kind of thing can be done. Um, and is your goal to teach them the right answer or to get them to learn different ways to find it? It's so my goal. I guess it depends. Now, I don't, the, the question is, are you, you're asking what is my personal goal or what should the goal be? Because hopefully they're the same. <laughs> I, think my question, I think my question was a distraction. Yeah. Well, because I allow them to, if somebody goes up, if, if a student tells me to go through a, through a problem a different way than what maybe the book says, or maybe even what I what I know. I still go through it, and if there are no mistakes, then well, we look at it. But I, I almost always ask my students, "Is there anybody here who would do it a different way?" Uh-huh. And then we walk through that way. Uh-huh. And what I find is that there are some students who prefer right. way A, some students who prefer way B, and the students who, student, the students who prefer way A, if they had only ever been taught B, B is so different to them right. that their mind can't wrap around it. And then, and then it, it almost can become that point where they just check out of math. Yes. I'm done now because that math no longer makes sense to me. Right. Well, but if I had introduced them to A, I might have, I, I might have been able to make, make a connection connection. that they could continue yeah. with math I mean, this long is a term. big conversation in the common core in math, the way you, how you get to the, the, the final answer. But it's also the, the, yeah. big, the classic thing is like every student no one wants to show their work, right? But the teachers aren't going to give you the right credit. Unless you show your work, so you can prove that you got to the final answer the way they want you to, mm-hmm. or or some teachers will say the way they want you to, but I think I think it seems to me that a really good mathematician is going to easily move among different ways and adapt to circumstances. I mean, when when you say, for example, seventeen plus sixteen to me, I just say it's thirty three because I remember that, All right? But if you're going to do seventeen times sixteen, when I was in school, I learned the normal way of seven times six is forty two and carry the four and all that. But I always would play these games with my friend Wayne, and we would, we would race each other. And I found out very quickly that if you go right to left, it takes forever. There's too many steps. And if you go left to right in your head, you can do it a lot faster. So yeah. now if I'm doing it in my head, I'm never going to go right to left. It takes too long. And I would guess that most architects and engineers and so on that are using math have come up with their own games. Because that's what it is. It's playing with numbers. That's what, that's what we're talking about. Mm. And so there are multiple paths, but the person who's really good at math is going to know a lot of them. He's not going to know the answers. He's going to know a lot of paths to the answers. Well, many of which will probably be made up by themselves because they'll understand. understand Now, if that's the case, 
If that's the case, then it's crucial for the math teacher both to teach the given algorithms, which is what these processes are called. It's crucial that the teacher teach the given algorithm and encourage and cultivate students' curiosity to find other ways of doing it and allow and celebrate it because yeah. it's good to do that. Now, that, to my mind, links it back to literature because now we've broken out of this sort of straitjacket approach to math and we're actually thinking about math more artistically, more like the art of mathematics, more creatively and more like literature, which is kind of interesting yeah. to me. Is but this is a it, good transition back or do you want to stay I, on I think it me? is, but um, I, I just want to comment on what David said about about showing your work. I, I think this might be the frustration for some students, which which might be the frust or for, for a particular student could be the frustration that drives them away from the studies of math. Because if if I'm doing 17 plus 16 the traditional way, right, left, mm -hmm, carry, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then I can show my work. Mm -hmm. And it might be tedious, but I can show it. Mm -hmm. But if I'm rounding 17 to 20, adding 16, subtracting 3, it, like I don't – I'm not doing that – not very consciously. Um, consciously. Well, right? So how do I write that out? Right. So then, so then saying saying I, you have to show your work for addition for seventeen plus sixteen seems silly to that kid because he doesn't know how he got there. He just knows that he got there. But but then in that case, I agree with you. But in that case, my my opinion would be that the teacher would do that child a great favor by reminding him because there was a time when that child knew what he was doing, and then it became so automatic that he that it's I, maybe not, but it seems to me there was. And, if, and if, if there wasn't, if the child never knew how he did that, it just kind of happened, that means he's got a great talent. That's good. But it would be a great favor for the teacher to show that child how he did it. Because, yeah, but a, because but a, then he's going to do it at higher and higher levels. But a quiz or an assignment where you, you, you're just having to show your work and then you just get an 87 well, back? Well, of course. I mean, that's, the, me, and, that's meaningless. All, the, all these, all these straitjacket formulations are a problem. Yeah. yeah. We have problems. What, what I'm talking about... I hope I can be forgiven for putting it this way, but what I'm talking about is the actual act of teaching a child something, not the act of administering a classroom. I value right, administering right, a classroom, right, but it's right. a different activity. Let's, for the sake of time, because we, we are obviously limited, let's jump back to the literature. Though, let's do it, yeah. Because you were going to make that point, so go ahead. Sure. So, so um, you know, how, how, how I would, with Jane Eyre, child comes to the wrong conclusion, I'm, I'm convinced, so I want to walk them back through it. Um, this is probably a harder example because I don't know the particular child who said that. So how the question— tell, tell us again the conclusion. The conclusion was that um, that Rochester and Jane should get married and that Rochester should just run off and leave his—because he's, mar he's already married. Okay. And he has a— um, crazy wife. A crazy wife locked mm -hmm. up in the attic or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And— this child concluded that that the love that Rochester and Jane had right. was greater than this woman's pain or whatever, and that they should just run off to France together mm -hmm. and leave the wife there to fend for herself um, because love wins. Right. Amor winket omnes. Love conquers all. Love conquers all, yeah. Uh, I was trying to remember what omnes was, but I got it there at the last second. Um, so, so, so there, are, there's a conclusion that I think needs to be, needs to be reconsidered, needs to be discussed. Um, it's possible that the child could convince me that I'm wrong or that I'm going to convince the child that he's wrong or whatever. I don't know. I don't, I don't know necessarily want to go into that, but I just go into it with that way. That way I just want to find out where, where he, how he got to where he got, and that's really the is there an error along point, the way? That, that the, the goal, the goal at first, is not to 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 presume. I mean, we believe the child is wrong, but the sure. goal at first is not is not to begin with this conviction that this child is wrong, because the child is not only wrong. And so and so we have to. I guess it was Stephen Covey who formulated that first seek first to understand, then to be understood. We have to understand how they got to that conclusion, yeah. or, or we won't be able to do them any good, will we? Right, because I can correct the conclusion, but if I don't correct the thing that got him there— Nicely said. Then what— Yeah. Well, could just keep coming to that, that kind of conclusion. Could, I can correct the conclusion, 
But if I don't correct the thing that got them there, they'll keep coming to it. That is power. So it's like in med- medicine, like if your, your leg might hurt. Put that in a bumper yeah. sticker. And, and I can give you pain medicine to kind of control the pain a little bit. Right. But if I can't figure out why it's causing you pain, I'm never going to be able to help you yeah. beyond mm-hmm. writing a prescription. Mm-hmm. And all along, I just had a, uh, what do you call those little pieces of sliver? I just had a sliver. <laughs> the thorn. Um, it's just going to get worse. Yeah. Mm. It could. It could get worse. Gangrene. It could lead to some, yeah, it could lead to something I else. No, I'm Chopped reluctant to up. keep talking. That point was so profound that we should all just have a moment of silence. What? You want to say it again? I don't remember it. I stumbled onto it, I think. If I don't correct, or I, I can correct the conclusion that the child has come to, but if I don't correct the thing that got him there... He's just going to come worthless. to it again? Yeah. I don't really think that last part needed to be restated. It's kind of... Doesn't it just kind of flow from, like, if I just... Yeah, because there are two kinds that. of people. There are two kinds, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're the extrapolator, clearly. Let's... <laughs> do, you know who Odysse- do you know who Polyphemus, the only person Polyphemus hated more than Odysseus? No. Himself. Nobody. <laughs> okay, let's... Wait, again, no, can I be a bad teacher here? Yeah. Because... The question we didn't answer Bobby, the question that was asked. That right? question, we went down a completely different yeah, path. That's what I was or gonna, did we? That's what I was going to. Or did we? Did we right? Because <laughs> because the, 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 the question is how do you get the reluctant student to ask questions? Yeah. But if I'm always trying to force the reluctant student down, the, the the reluctant student doesn't ask questions and is reluctant, quite possibly because he's always being forced down a particular path. Or he's always having his conclusions corrected without ever, without ever. Because um... nobody cares about his questions. Well, yeah, there's no such thing mm. as a student that doesn't have questions. We all have questions of some sort or another, and it's how. But as David Hicks says, we have yeah. to elicit those questions. We have to figure out how to get those, draw those questions out, and how to get them to express them. Good, good. I have a, I have a student in my class, and I, I suspect that most of the time he's, um, he's just harassing me. Um, but in a in a in a, all good students, in a good way, right? Um, but his his question every time is, "Why do we have to read Shakespeare? What's so great about Shakespeare? Why?" And it, like he his question is like not three year old, like a three year old. Yeah, why, his his question is not why did you know Beatrice um, fall for the lie and and fall in love with Benedict? His question is, "Why am I reading Much to Do About Nothing?" And he has a question. He he seems like a reluctant student. Here's a reluctant student who doesn't want to discuss much ado about nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he's not a student without questions. Right. He has a question. Right. And I have to be willing to – if I want him to not be reluctant, I have to engage the question. You have to honor that, that, I have to, the questions he yeah, does have. Yes. That's, that's what I wrote when, when you brought it back to that question. I wrote two things down. One is honor them. Honor the student and honor the questions that they do have. But the second thing is that builds on this too – is that you've got to, we've got to all recognize that everybody's asking the same questions. It's just the particular, it's the particular um, context that a child might be asking, you know, a different question. So, so every kid in the classroom is saying, why do I have to read Shakespeare? Mm-hmm. And so am I as a teacher. I'm saying, why do I have to read Shakespeare? Now, I've got reasons for it that maybe the kids don't have, and those might work for the students. But we're asking the same questions, and I would argue... And you're always looking for new answers, too, even if you like Absolutely. something. I mean, that's a question that we're all asking every time we pick up the book. I mean, why am I reading this again? Even if right, we don't necessarily right. consciously think that. Well, well, people say, I don't usually read books a second time, but this book I read a second time. And so as you're reading it, you're asking yourself, why am I compelled to teach this? Why am I compelled to read this? Why, do I, why am I compelled to... Why would a person read a book once? But, well, <laughs> last night I, had, I was reading A Tale of Two Cities for the first time, I confess. And I asked, I asked myself the question, why am I reading this book? Uh-huh. And then I remembered it's because I was dared. Uh-huh. So I was able to answer the question. But the... But the um, That's but a good dare. That's a, yeah, that, a deep, deep it's a good answer. dare, yeah. Well, the, the, the other person has to read Flannery O'Connor, so um, it was a fair trade, I think. I think I know who this person is. <laughs> <laughs> I the, the thing, though, is that the, 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 the fear, I think, what we might have is wh- where we don't want to honor the student or honor his question is when he asks a question that we don't have an answer to. Yeah, sure. Like, why, why do I have to read Shakespeare? If I can't answer that question, then I'm, I'm annoyed with the student and I'm frustrated with the student because I want him to not be reluctant and just read Shakespeare. I agree. But you see, this is, I'm still coming back to the fact that we're all asking the same questions because why do I have to read Shakespeare is another way of saying, should I read Shakespeare? 
It's an mm-hmm. invitation. You can reject it. Yes. And sometimes it is true. Sometimes the student will be annoyed at the teacher and will throw it at the teacher out of what we might call rebellion. All right. So, so then the teacher has to figure out in the specific context how to respond to that. But generally speaking, overthrowing rebels doesn't convert them. Um, but the should question is something that everybody's interested in. And the is it true question is something that everybody's interested in. Can you give some examples of this? Of should questions? Yeah. Should Rochester have run off with, with Jane Eyre? Jane Eyre, yeah. Right? That's what this kid was drawing a conclusion on. And my guess is it's a hypothesis, not a conclusion. Should the student have carried the one? What? In the math problem, should the student should have, the carried, student the have one? carried the one? Right. Because right. should is very practical. It's very literary. It's very moral. We're always, every split second of the day, we're asking what we should do most of the time without being aware of it. Thank God. Our heads would crack if we, if we knew. That's why we develop habits is because we've already answered a lot of should questions and we don't want to rethink them all the time. But there are some, but there are some should questions that, that, and literature is fabulous for it, but practically speaking, math is fabulous for should questions. What should I do to solve this problem? So if you come back constantly to should questions, and you know there's 4,000 ways to express it, if you just keep saying, what should I do next, or should he do that, kids get annoyed, even though that's the soul's question. But just keep coming back to it. And then use the topics of invention from, from classical rhetoric as they're developed in Lost Tools. Um, ask the question, is it true? These are questions that drive kids. And, mm-hmm. but, but what they're, what the, here's, okay. There's, there's, your spe- there's a specific practical measure, too. I mean, that's the Absolutely. I got I to say one more thing here because this, I think, is so crucial. Every single child is interested in learning. Okay, but then you have to ask, what are, they willing, what are they interested in learning? And my answer is the truth. What they aren't interested in doing is being reduced to performers. And we very often think that they're not interested in learning when, in fact, we're taking something outside of their minds, something they can't even see, and then getting mad at them for not getting excited about something they've never seen. That's that's a very significant difference to me. Yeah, I want to I, I want to connect this for the sake of the listeners to to a practical point because the practical is so much more important than anything else. <laughs> um, Are you trying to say what I was saying wasn't practical? <laughs> well, I, no, I just want to connect a dot that you made. Or you 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 made a dot. I want to connect it to you another make dot. That specific to another dot. So to to another dot that the listeners might have. Um, thing is good. So, so you you converted the question that the student asks that looks like makes the student look like a reluctant student, mm-hmm. and and and, you, and it made it look like he had a question that wasn't a real question. Mm-hmm. It was just a, a question to annoy me. <clears throat> yeah. But you converted it into a question that I actually know how to play with. Yeah. You took it from a why should I why read Shakespeare to a should why I read I Shakespeare, and now now our our teachers and students are equipped to know how to wrestle with that, especially if they have any familiarity yeah, with yeah. the common topics and lost tools yeah. and, and um, canons of rhetoric, et cetera. There are, there are so many things that you can do with that to, um, to turn it into a real question mm-hmm. that can be answered, that can be wrestled with, that honors the student, that honors his question. Mm-hmm. Why not? And, and, and I know how to, and I know as a teacher how to use that question. If you, yeah, if you know how to use it. So, so which is easy. So, so if a, if a kid says, "Why do I have to read Shakespeare?" Maybe a good response would be to say, "Well, what do you think? Should we read Shakespeare?" Mm-hmm. And have a class discussion about it. And at some point, you're going to need an example of Shakespeare. So say, well, let's yeah. check it out. Let's read this and see if it gives us any reasons for or against. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? then, then at the very least, you're working with the student. Right. He may feel played. Some kids are so cynical by high school that no matter what you do, they're going to play. They're going to feel played. But you're not. So if they misinterpret, that's, that's their problem. I mean, kids by high school are very corrupt, just like teachers are. And the beautiful so. thing is, is that you started with, with what looked to be a kind of fake question that the student was mm-hmm. trying to get mm-hmm. you with and you turn and you and you used it and I don't mean use in a you know utilitarian but I mean you used that made use of it a, a, mm-hmm. made use of it in an appropriate way to elicit more questions mm-hmm. from that student and other students so you have the reluctant student who doesn't have questions or appears to not have questions right. now has questions right. and you've 
solved our problem. Right. Am I right in thinking then that to make to to really do this right, we as teachers have to avoid the fear of uh, the off-topic question or the question that is going to keep us from accomplishing that yes. lesson. Yeah. Somebody I love dearly says um, that when it comes to teaching and learning, it's all about the rabbit trail. Well, the rabbit trail is is the message. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the problem we have is is we have to stop reading so much, right? We're, we're, we're feeling as a teacher, like, I have to get through Much Ado About Nothing by the end of next week. And if I engage in this discussion about why we should read Much About Do About Nothing, I mean, why would anybody, what good is it going to do a kid academically to answer the question, why should I read Much Ado About Nothing? Well, who knows what good it could be. Right, exactly, right? Right. right. I mean, uh, my argument is that I meant my question to be absurd. Of course it's going <laughs> to do the kids some good. But, but, but we are afraid that we're not going to get through Much Ado About Nothing by next, the end of next week if we entertain this question. And mm. that matters because you have something else behind it. Yeah, we, we read too much. Yeah. We do. We read too much. And, and here's the thing. The more you read, the more shallow your reading is. If you want to teach children how to read deeply, read less. Teach them how to read hard things well. And then the easy stuff, like, you know, my, no, I'm just kidding. Um, the, the easy stuff will be easy. They'll, they'll know how to. And by the way, they'll weave it all together intuitively. Would you say this is especially true in younger years, like even more so? What is that especially should, true? I'm sorry. That we need to... Help them learn how not try to read as much and read fewer things that are harder and go slower. I think we always need to do that. I think we read way, way too much. My favorite educator in world history is, is Homer, but after Homer is a guy named Vittorino de Feltre, who was I was it Florence or some city in Italy, 15th century, and he taught. Florence. He taught. <laughs> it's got to be. Maybe he taught the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich. Not very many of them, but he taught them. He was a monk. And he did it out of charity, and he taught them in the course of their entire school career. He taught them eight books. What from eight or nine years old up to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. adulthood? Mm-hmm. Wow! Mm-hmm. And here's the thing: this this is a heart. You have to take this on faith or reject it, or some of you might be able to take this by experience. I'm 51 now, and I've been teaching. I, I read the Iliad when I was 20 for the first time, and I did not like it. 19. I did not like it. I thought it was tedious. I thought it went on and on and on. So, okay, I'm 51 now. I have children and grandchildren. I've been teaching it off and on for years. And I can tell you, there is a wisdom and a depth to the Iliad that opens up anything you will ever read. If you try to read five lines in Homer a week, you will understand everything else you read better. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to even push it a step further. I'm going to say everything else is derivative. Homer was known by the Greeks to be their master teacher. You can't understand Greek civilization without understanding Homer. Therefore, you can't understand Roman history without understanding Homer. Therefore, you can't understand Western history. And when I say understand, forget the word understand. Nobody understands Homer. It's like understanding the ocean. It's the experience, okay? And if you spend a lot of time reading a few books that merit a lot of time, you're reading everything. And our problem is that we don't, what we think, we see a bunch of glasses on a table, a bunch of empty glasses on a table, and we go past them, we tap them each, and we say, there, I tasted that wine. Okay, what I'm saying is put some wine in a glass and drink it. Or if you don't drink wine, put some Coke in a glass and drink it. And really drink it. Notice the flavor. Get to know one book, one author, really well. It's like when everything else will be... When you go to a five-star restaurant with a really amazing chef, they're not serving you very rarely are they serving you heaps. They're not going to serve you a buffet. They're going to serve you two Mm -hmm. to three things that are really rich that have been carefully crafted. Hmm. So our schools... Usually in small portions on large plates that make them look beautiful. Please nobody be offended by this if you work at, at a place like this, but our schools take the approach of the old country buffet to eating, and what we want to do is five-star chef approach. Yeah. We want, and, huh. and, 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 and as teachers, we need to do this too because we're not learning how to read because what we're doing is we're taking a book, we're giving it to the kids, and we're reading a reader's guide. We're reading a teacher's guide about the book that tells us what to think about the book, and we don't engage the book. We don't learn how to read that way. Reading, reading I mean, at a certain level, reading is really hard. So if we want our kids to ask questions and to ask the questions that they have and to draw them out, we need to stop telling them what to think then. 
within certain parameters. Yeah, we we need we to teach them how think, to think but not within tell them reality. What to think. Yeah, uh, and I, but which is which I think you you were said at one some point earlier on that you know it, is there a time when you just have to tell them that they have the wrong conclusion? You know, and I mean, gr- granted with age limitations and you know four year olds or whatever, um, the. Uh, the answer, yeah, you. There Practically are, there, speaking, sometimes you have to. Just tell sometimes them. you have to tell them, and, and and it doesn't even have to be an age thing. I mean, there there may be times when my seventeen year old just has to be told, mm-hmm. "Do not run out into the street without looking, mm-hmm. or I'm going to kick you in the head." Um, I, we have a very violent household, apparently. <laughs> um, it's yeah. just it's like just, you could get your foot out. It's just it's just uh, levels of violence. Yeah, it's yeah, about, right, right. Because right. I wouldn't no. kick my four-year-old in the head, but I would but kick my 17 I want to jump on this. This is a really important point. The difference is that as an adult, as a mature adult, it's not that you're older. It's that you've been delegated authority by God and you are a provider and a protector. But the task of the parent and the task of the teacher is to hand authority over to the child. That's what you're doing. You're teaching them to govern their own lives so that you don't have to govern it. That's what a free person is. And so... If we have to intervene based on wisdom and experience, whether it's a math problem or walking into the traffic, if we have to intervene based on wisdom and experience, then we are bound in our submission to God and authority and nature to do so. Mm-hmm. But if we don't, then we're making a mistake in doing so. If we don't have to. If we don't have because to intervene, if we don't have to give the answer, if we don't have to say, don't run into the street, if we can say, do you think it would be prudent to run into the street? It's a lot more of a nuisance for us as a parent, sometimes more stressful, but it's, it's how they take authority over their own thinking. Yeah. And I got to tell you, the one thing that doesn't happen in, in the conventional school setting is children don't learn to take authority over their own thinking and actions. So whereas my reaction might be to say, stop, you've made a mistake right here in this math problem. You have not carried the one. My instinct would be to, to do that. Yeah. And the clock demands it of you. And the clock might demand it of me, yeah. Sometimes. But I need, but I need to let them work through that so that they can learn to take, to take on that extra authority. We want them to learn to make – we want to help them learn to make judgments on their own rather than make judgments for them. Is it, mm-hmm. is it more mm-hmm. efficient when you're teaching? Is it more efficient to learn for your student or for the student to learn the lesson? It depends on if you have to learn it and then no, it get doesn't. them to also learn it. <laughs> right. And it depends if how depends long what, how long I'm going to be their teacher. No, Do I think, move up with them every year? No, 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 it doesn't. Think about the absurdity of my question. Well, I mean, oh, is yeah. it more efficient for you to learn something for your student, which is to say is it more efficient to do something that cannot be done? Or is it more efficient for the student to learn something himself? Is it more efficient for Matt to go to the bathroom or for you to go for him? Yeah, I would never even, you know, allow such an analogy to come to my mind, but yeah. I think I got that one from you. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we have spent far more time than we were going to on this conversation. Please so, forgive us. Um, you have abused my commitment. But did we ever get an answer to Jane Eyre? We'll have to do that on a different well, we, a Jane we Eyre. We did. Podcast. We just we couldn't be very specific because we don't know the particular child. But we walk them we walk them backwards through their their logic, their thinking. To find out what what kinds of decisions they were making that that got them to that final decision, which was they should and, run and, off. And one last thought is, and in so doing, we recognize that whatever mistake they're making in their moral thinking might not be fixable in today's lesson. Yes, please right. remember that. Yeah. Every lesson does not have to be wrapped up in forty five minutes. The right. sun will come or, up tomorrow, or even in one full day or one full week. It could take a semester. It could take a year. It could take a heck of a lot longer than it that. It could thing. take and you might not the entire lose. stinking life. And that's the thing about those of us that aren't homeschool, homeschooling parents, or if you're not a homeschooling parent, if you were a teacher in a school, the, you might be, if you're a ninth grade teacher, it might be the 12th grade teacher or the mm-hmm. college right. professor or yeah. the spouse is that, that, <laughs> that reaps the rewards of what you sowed. Is that because when we read The Prodigal Son, we think he was gone for like four days? <laughs> huh. Nice. It's like it's like nice. well, I'm reading the story. Five days later, he's in the pig slop. Okay, now he's going home, and that you know, if my kid runs off. He's burned I, through a whole fortune in a week. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Things were really expensive back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> and again, from a practical perspective, for those the quote unquote practical, the should questions and the uh, the uh, what was the other one? 
is it true? Is I it think true? That, questions are, are very useful in mm-hmm. helping. And do I like it? See, do I like it? That we're asking three questions all the time. What should I do? Is it true? Do I like it? And those are all legitimate, important questions. Yep. Thank you for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Cisterns of Learning dug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. Join us next week for another conversation and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.